So, that was a lot there. I want to focus in, I want to remind you of this morning, because this book, the book of Daniel, is going to repeat themes and get back into things that we've already seen, and we're going to build. So I want to remind you of a few things from this morning, and then we're going to jump into the rest of our passage. We're going to finish chapter one this evening. Um, reminder that Daniel and his friends were plucked away from their home in a most violent, abusive, tragic, traumatic way. They're not just only in a foreign land, land but a land that is actually hostile towards them. Uh, they've probably seen most of their family and friends slaughtered before their eyes, um, and um, they are now walking trophies in the hall of King Nebuchadnezzar of all that he has accomplished, and they're walking trophies to show how great he is. But we've also seen that not only are they exiled, but all humanity is actually exiled. What happens with Daniel and his friends is just a picture of what's happened for all of us. Just a reminder, reminder, the original design, the good design that God had for us is that we would actually be with him forever, face-to-face, physically, in this garden city that would spread throughout the world and bring shalom, the peace of God, and the goodness of God, and these good gifts. No sin, no death, no suffering, no divorce, nothing like that. No COVID, whatever you, anything. And that was ruined when man rebelled his, against God's good authority, rejected him, and what happens, they were exiled out of Eden. And the whole story of the Bible is this on repeat, and it's, it's the, our story too, is that we get this promised land for God's people, and then God's promised people don't want to trust God, don't want to love him and submit to him, so they get displaced from their land and his presence, and then everything falls apart in on themselves. And so all of us, whether you're an atheist in here or you're a Christian, all of us are exiles from our original home. You were meant to be with God. You were meant to know him face to face. That was our original design, and God has created a rescue plan to bring us back. And so we're all exiles, and Daniel is a field guide on how to get safely home. How do we get to the point where one day heaven will no longer be separated from earth, but heaven will actually come down onto earth? Heaven will not be separated in the sky, but actually renew this living earth physically, and God will reign here. And that's our ultimate destination we also learn that modern that Babylon, the very land that in the empire that Daniel is living in now, is the modern day, at least for their time, place where ba- Babel was. Remember, it's in the plain of Shinar. And in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, that is the future site of Babylon. And what is the Babylonian kind of heart, the attitude, the spirit? It's a heart of self def- self-reliance, self-glory self-expression, self-love, all about self. And so that is the culture of Babylon that's going to be shoved down Daniel and his friend's throat. Do whatever makes you happy. Do whatever for yourself. And so that is kind of what we touched on briefly this morning. And now we're going to go further into it. Now, whenever you study the Bible, you have to remember it's also literature and historical Uh, a historical document, the authors are going to often repeat certain words in order to emphasize and get your attention. So if you see a word repeated over and over again, I'm not talking about like the, but a verb usually, a word that's that's not always used, it's it's a way for the author to give you a clue of the emphasis of what he's trying to uh, show you. Now, there's a word 
that is repeated three times throughout chapter one that kind of organizes what, what we're trying to see here, and that's the word gave. Last session, we talked about God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Remember, God is sovereign. He's doing it. And it's not because Nebuchadnezzar is great. It's because God is great and God has a good plan with what he's doing. And he's trying to redeem and purify his people who are wayward at this time. A reminder what God's sovereignty is. God's sovereignty is, anyone write this down as a definition? Anybody? You want to read it out loud? Go, go ahead. Go for it. What is God's sovereignty? So good. Wow. That's so good. I guess, I guess I'm congratulating myself because I wrote that definition. <laughs> you're so good, Sam. Okay. So that's the general idea of God's sovereignty. And you're going to see it over again repeated because the second gave you're going to see in this chapter is God gave favor. And the final one is God gave knowledge. And you're going to see that. But if you want to look at your Bibles real quick, you will likely, depending on translation, see the word gave repeated three times. That's, that's important. What we're going to see is that God is sovereign over all things, not just big things like nations and empires and, 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 and temples being thrown, overthrown, but all the little things too. And this is a tricky thing. This is a mystery throughout the Bible. We talked about this in Jonah as well as Jireh in the attributes of God. Um, but the, the reality is that the Bible teaches that God is sovereign over all things, and yet you have real free choices that matter. Real choices that matter that you want, you decide, and you're responsible for. And where Christians get in trouble is that they'll, they'll think about, they'll emphasize one over the other. And the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't divorce friends. They're friends. They, God in his great knowledge and ability is able to bring those together while it's hard for us humans to understand those. And that's one thing I just want to say to the side. God, God is sovereign and that you have free choices. You can do what you want. And yet God is sovereign over it. I don't know how that works together. The Bible actually doesn't perfectly tell you, but both realities are seen throughout the Bible and you cannot uh, pick one or the other. And so we're gonna see that, that God is sovereign over this situation. And this is really important because even though they're in this foreign world where it looks like God has lost, God is dead, God isn't real, God is still reigning. God is still reigning over this world superpower. So let's look at this first one. Look at verse three. So we just were in verse one and two. We're going to finish the chapter. Going to go a lot quicker because we're going to jump into a narrative, a story here. So then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish and of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature the language of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is another name for Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So I, I told you that Daniel and his friends are like walking trophies. So you can imagine this. If you were an empire destroyer like Babylon was, every single time that you destroyed an, uh, an empire or, or another nation... You would kill most people, but then take the most gifted, the most royal blood kind of people, bring them into your home, indoctrinate them into your ways, make them one of your own as a way to one, be a walking, it's just a water bottle, okay, it's okay. 
as one way to have them as walking statue trophies. So imagine you have a friend over and you're like, hey, look over there. Uh, that one, uh, oh, that was part of the Jewish empire. Yep, we uh, took over them. You see, that's, uh, he was going to be a prince there. Oh, you see this one over here? They were going to be a Philistine. You know, and can you see how boastful you could feel and cool you'd feel as you showcase these walking trophies who are now part of your people? And also, it's another way to subvert those people because if you take the very royal nobility and the best and brightest of a culture and you make them one of yours, their people will likely follow. Does that make sense? And actually, we see in another passage that King Jehoiakim actually sat at the king's table. So he just gave up his Jewish lineage and his faith and just followed the ways of the Nez or Nebuchadnezzar. So now we're going to find what they're going to do as a step to further indoctrinate them and make them their own. Let's look at the power of names. Look at verse 6 now. Among these are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief eunuch gave them names. Now, I'm not going to read those names right now because we're going to get to them in a second. But one way that you break in captives is that you name them. Am I allowed to, I'm going to speak in in reality right now. Am I allowed to name you? No. No, no, you have a name. I don't have that authority, right? I'm not your father. I don't have that authority to name you. So if I were to take over your country and then put you into my home and then I name you, I'm saying, I am your authority. That's so offensive, right? I'm going to tell you who you are. And the thing about names in the Bible is that names were loaded with meaning and connected to identity and who you are. That's why I named my son Elijah, because Elijah is two Hebrew words coming together, El, Eli, my God, Yahweh, Yah, Yahweh is my God. And Michael is who is like the Lord. I want that to be true of him. I'm, I'm placing that reality over his life as a father. I'm praying for that. I'm hoping for that. And all these Hebrew names are connected with God. Look at the screen up here. So Daniel means God's my judge. Is there any Daniels here? Any Daniels here? Yay! There you go. Did you know that was your name? That's what it meant? Hopefully you knew that was your name, right, Daniel? (laughs) You knew that meant God is my judge. Anyone here? Any Hananiahs here? Nope. Okay. Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. Mishael, who is what God is. And Azariah, Yahweh is my helper. So those were what their names meant. Now they're given new Babylonian names associated with Babylonian gods. Next slide, please. So Belteshazzar is Bel protects my life. They're a polytheistic nation, so they had several gods. Shadrach, the commander of Aku. Meshach, who is what Aku is. And Abednego, or Abednego, is servant of Nebo, or Nebo. What are they doing here? What are they doing? They are branding them with new identities. They're trying to enculturate them into a new religion and tell them who they are by their name. Names are powerful. Any of you guys can think of a name that someone has called you that was hurtful, and though you say it doesn't affect you, you have it on repeat. A statement over you is almost like it placed identity upon you. You are a loser. 
you're a failure, right? These words, especially from parental figures, can, can mark a generation and a destina- destination. And that's what they're doing with these names. But throughout the book of Daniel, what you're going to see is that the Babylonians refer to them by their new names, but they personally address each other by their Hebrew names. They accept publicly what the Babylonians brand them, but privately, they know who they are. They don't forget their identity. This is significant because they don't reject it publicly. They can be flexible with their names because names are culturally flexible. There are some names in our American culture that sound absolutely outrageous in other cultures, but to you, they sound normal. Cultural names can be flexible, and Daniel and his friends understood that, but they never flexed with moral convictions. They are not narcissistic either, demanding people to respect them and how they identify, like many in our culture do. They quietly defy them with their character. They put them to shame with quiet acts of gentleness and knowing who they are. You see this throughout the whole book of Daniel, is that Daniel and his friends have a way to fight, but not with anger or rage or shouting people down or social media, but this quiet, confident gentleness of knowing who they are. And it disarms people. Some areas that they they will realize that some areas they can adopt from Babylon and they're fine, in areas that they cannot. But what we see is that typically, when you are being indoctrinated by a culture, two things happen. There are two paths that people typically choose. One path is the path of just selling out. Okay, I'll just be that. That's what Judith is doing, the gross girl, the one who's doing all that stuff, right? She's just, just giving herself to that culture. The other classic response when you're trying to be indoctrinated into a culture is fight like the Maccabees. We're not going to be like you. But there's a third way, and it's the way that the prophets proclaim. It's a way that's different. It's harder. It's knowing when you can flex with the culture and knowing when you need to stand your ground. And when you stand your ground, you're doing it graciously. You're doing it confidently. You're doing it gently and respectfully. And in all that you do, you seek to do it with love and to bless others. Jeremiah, God has given a command to Jeremiah, a prophet, and he says, seek the welfare of the city you'll be in. He doesn't say tear down Babylon from inside, infiltrate the, the very upper echelons of society, and then tear them down. No, no, he says, actually, seek the welfare of them. And so what God calls his people to do is something that almost no culture would ever do. It's this third way. Just quiet subversion, always seeking to love and bring blessing to others. Flex where you can, reject where you can't. Let me make this more simple. I didn't come up with this. There's others who did this. It's called the three R's of culture. If you want to understand, should I listen to the song? Should I go out with this person? Should I go to this school? Should I get this job? Should I watch this movie? Should I wear that clothing? All that kind of stuff. All these questions that you have to make in life, you can ask them with these three questions. This is, these are the three R's, okay? You can reject, receive, or redeem it. These are the three R's. It makes things really simple as you ask 
and wrestle through different things that you should do. And this is what Daniel understood intuitively by the Spirit of God. First, you can reject it because God has commanded it to be rejected completely. You don't even need to consider it. You don't do that. You don't engage in that. The Holy Spirit would be grieved. Now, there's another category of things that you can redeem. They're neutral things, good gifts that God has given and made free for us to enjoy, but often they can go be taken in the wrong way. They're morally neutral, but often sinful hearts will abuse it. For example, sports is a good gift God gives us. I saw you guys on the rec field. It's awesome. And yet, sports can often be an idol, can they not? Can they be not all-consuming and a mini-God in our lives, right? And so sports is something that is morally neutral that you can redeem carefully, but it's not inherently sinful. And the final thing is you can receive it. It's something that's morally neutral, it's fine, it's good, and you, don't, you can just take it and you can live on with it. So those are the three R's you can consider. To do this well takes long time. You need to be biblically fluent. You need to be wise. You need to have counselors in your life to help you think through this because it's not so simple. There's certain things that are easy, like you can't redeem pornography. It's just evil, period. There's nothing about it that you can redeem. But there are other things that are a little more difficult. Like how do you, how do you engage in a high-power job where you work with a company that's deeply corrupt at times or that, that is full of greed in a culture that is all about making money? right? Like on Wall Street, can you redeem that? that? That's not so simple as it's good or bad for Christians, and you need wisdom, and you need a community that will walk you through these hard things, and you need to know your Bibles well. And so we're going to see throughout this book how Daniel is able to reject, redeem, and receive different things, him and his friends. Now let's look at a time where they could not receive or redeem. They had to reject. Look at verse 8. Would you read this out loud with me? But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. See, what happened just there is that some of you guys forgot that periods mean that you pause. So half of you took a small pause at the period. Others forgot that there was a period and you just kept reading. So you guys were off. Do you guys see how that just happened? Okay, just kidding. All right, I'm just trying to help you guys out. All right. So what Daniel does, Daniel and his friends, they realize that they cannot redeem or receive the king's table. He resolves. It's not an impulsive decision. It's something that he resolved to do with intentionality. He counts the costs. And he's still a Jew, no matter what the Babylonians say, say or how they brand him and name him or try to indoctrinate him, he's still under the Mosaic law, so he's under dietary restrictions. And if you read Leviticus, which I know that you guys all do all the time, right? Leviticus clearly spells out certain dietary limitations for Jews. Now, we're not going to get into all the reasons why God has good reasons behind it. That's not the purpose of this talk here. But God said no to those things. And so Daniel is resolved to be in Babylon and not of Babylon. And that's the hope for you, to be in the world but not of the world. And it's so easy, though, to slip, right? When in Rome, as Judith says, just go along with it. It's not that big of a deal. Man, God doesn't really care about what you eat. He could just be like King Joachim, like I said. King Joachim was just sitting at the king's table, just partaking. Hey, when in Rome, just do what it goes, like, let's not make a big deal about food. 
And what, what's some interesting, we're going to get about the food and why God may ask them not to do the food and what was wrong with it. But consider this. Who did no, Daniel ask for permission? Look at, look at the passage again. Look at verse 8 on the screen. Say that aloud. It's not a trick. Chief of the eunuchs. What's a eunuch? Do you know what a eunuch is? See, the eunuchs would serve the king, and they would be around nobility, and one of the ways they, they keep them from being unfaithful or doing something they shouldn't do with royal family or different people is that they would castrate them. They would take these young men, and they would castrate them so that they couldn't have children, okay? Or for them to sing high notes, if you guys know anything about that history. So I'm not going to get into details of what castration is, but if Daniel is speaking to the chief of eunuchs, it is more than likely that he is now what? A eunuch. This bro has suffered. Seriously. I know it sounds funny, but man, that's terrifying. You see your whole family slaughtered. You're taken away from your homeland. You're now being indoctrinated. Almost everyone you know has died, and they castrate you while they're at it. This is horrible. And something that's interesting about Daniel is though he suffers greatly, you never hear a sense, even a sniff of bitterness in his heart. There is just this gentleness and gratitude that reverberates out of Daniel that I want to be like, I am so quick to self-pity and grumbling. This guy has been through it. Now, we're not exactly told why they resisted the food, why it would defile them exactly, but we can make some educated guesses. It's likely that the food from the king's table were forbidden from the Mosaic law. It's also true that the Jewish dietary law was a way to separate God's people to say, show that they're unique and a way to keep them from intermingling with other nations that worshiped other gods that would constantly lead them astray. It's also common that the foods that the Babylonians would eat would be offered up to idols before they partake. So they would give it up to the god of Marduk and, and then give it to them afterwards. But you have to understand that food isn't just food, it's also culture, right? Isn't food so important to our culture? It brings the people around the table. So don't just think, oh, it's just, it's just food, but it's actually connected to all that comes with their food. And in Babylon, they would have these epic feasts regularly. And don't just think that they're just eating prim and proper with, you know, these tablecloths and, you know, all this nice. We're, we're talking about really insane feasts with lots of promiscuity, lots of insanity, lots of drunkenness, and everything you could think that would come with that in a nation that does not submit to God. So when Daniel's saying no to the food, him and his friends, they're not just saying no to food because the food is bad, right? The food is, good, is a good gift from God. But it's what it's connected to that Daniel can't associate with, likely. Does that help? Try to understand what's going on. But you can't underestimate the danger of Daniel's request. What he is asking could easily be just immediately punished. You ungrateful slave, you should, you, uh, we could have killed you like we killed everyone else. We're offering you food from the king's table, bro. Not, I'm not even talking about just food that's from like the, on the crumbs. We're giving you the best food and you are asking for something else. How ungrateful are you? You may hear the saying that every man has a price. Have you ever heard that? Everyone has their price. 
In other words, every person has boundaries and principles that we will not bend on except for a certain price, right? Samuel, Samuel, where's Samuel? Oh, sorry, there's, I guess, more than one Samuel. Samuel, the counselor, is he here? Okay, he's not. Samuel, you do not eat salad, as you said, except once a year, right? But then if I offered you $5, would you give it? Would you eat it? Oh, dang, that's a low price. All right, <laughs> that didn't really work. All right, that man has a price, and it's low. Okay, so he'd eat salad for $5. All right, so mama, if you're listening, give him $5, and he eat his salad finally. But if we go down the list, there are certain things in life, like let's say there's a certain heirloom in your family or something very, very precious to you, that if I offered you some money, you'd say, no, absolutely no. A hundred dollars, nah, man. Thousand dollars, like, nah, man, nah. Ten thousand dollars, you're like, oh, okay, okay, right? Right, so all of us often, not all of us, many of us have a price. We keep going up, whether it's the numbers or something else, and then eventually we have a price and we'll do something that we said we would never do. And what we see throughout the book of Daniel is that Daniel and his friends don't have a price. They don't have a price. You can't pay them off. No matter what you offer them, no matter what you threaten them, no matter what pressures befall them, they do not have a price. Why? Because you cannot buy Daniel because he already has everything. Even though he's a slave, he knows who he is. He knows who he has. He has Yahweh himself. And even though he's in exile, he knows that he ultimately has an inheritance that is unfading, imperishable, far greater than anything they can offer. So he doesn't have a price. So no matter what they offer him, no matter what they pressure him, he will not bow. See, when you know that you have the ultimate treasure in Jesus, then you won't give up. You won't let go. You won't compromise because you have a greater treasure. Just like if I had a, a million dollars and you try to offer me five dollars in exchange, I'd be like, that's just stupid. No, but, but Sam, five dollars, that doesn't matter. And Daniel is like that. He is encountered, the one who he was made for. He knows this one. He's his. And so no matter what you offer him, he won't compromise. See, so, so that's kind of leads me to my first point this morning. See, the goal in Daniel is not to get you to be like Daniel. It's for you to know Daniel's God. Because Daniel had unwavering compromise. And he had unwavering compromise, compromise not because he was made of a better stuff than you and me. Or because he was uniquely courageous. No, he was a coward. I am a coward. You are a coward. But what he had is he had a, a knowledge and experience with the greatest treasure ever. And because he knew this God, then he could never be bought out. And that's what I want for you. You cannot go out there and stand up and be courageous for Jesus. You can't. But if you know that God is more valuable than everything else, then you can as an overflow of the great treasure you have. And that's my great hope for you this week. And that's what Daniel had. But you don't need a life and death situation to know what you ultimately value. You don't need to be exiled into another nation. You just got to look at all the little micro decisions you make every week to show you what your price is, what you truly value. Some of you here say you love God, but not when you're tired. <laughs> That's your price. Your, your fatigue, your, your comfort. I love God, but when I'm lonely, or stress, you love porn too. 
found your price. I love God, but when my friends are not into him, you found your price, your friends. I love God and his people, but not when they hurt me. If they hurt me, I will ghost them all, slander them, gossip about them, and stonewall them and separate myself from them. Found your price. No one crosses you. What situations or temptations cause you to cave? What are the situations that you're good with, but then the moment it goes there, that's the line, and that's your price? Maybe during camp here, you want to seek God. You want to worship God. You want to read your Bible. You want to seek him, but you are afraid of what your friends or those that you want to be your friends think. You found your price. Maybe there's another camper in your youth group that have come with you or some that you see in this group, in this campsite, and you feel this prick, maybe from the Holy Spirit, maybe your conscience saying, you should, you should go talk to them. You should invite them into your friend group. But then you think, yeah, but they're probably awkward. Or maybe my friends will make fun of me or that, that will make my time not as fun. You found your price. See, all these little micro decisions that we make are ultimately pointing at what we worship, what we treasure, what we value. You don't need to look at your professions or the jewelry you're wearing. I don't care. I've seen a lot of crosses on necklaces. I don't care if you have a cross necklace or you don't. Right? That's fine. It's a morally neutral thing to have. But if you treasure the cross, your life looks like that. <laughs> All these decisions we make show who our God is, what our price is. Oh, that we would be so in love with God, so know him that we would have no price. And we would do whatever he has for us, no matter the cost. Let's see the result of Daniel's bold faith here in his request. Let's look at God gave. The, first God, the second God gave in our chapter. Daniel 1.9, look at this. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. God gave the Israelites over the Babylonians, but he also gave Daniel favor. Again, this shows God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is not merely like lightning and hard things, but it's also favor and compassion. You have to see the full robust picture of God's sovereignty. It's both Love and judgment. The God who is in charge of everything is also influencing the man who's in charge of Daniel in Babylon. So God rewards Daniel's faithfulness with favor and compassion. Look at verse 10. Would you read this out loud? Remember periods. All right, let's do this, guys. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, Great job, guys. Listen, you, you get a little sense. This eunuch is afraid for his life. We're going to see throughout the book of Daniel that Babylon is characterized by brutality. Nebuchadnezzar is just really quick to just kill people. And the eunuch is terrified of this. So this is a big request. This is not something small. Oh, can you call me Sam instead of Samuel? Right? Like it's, it's a huge request that could come and backfire on the king uh, the eunuch as well as Daniel. And so Daniel respectfully counters with the 10-day proposal test, as you guys saw in the video, 10 days to, to see if they're healthier than the other king's servants. 
Many of us would shrink after the initial denial, but Daniel persists, and he, he thinks of a respectful, different plan that they agree. So what's the result? Look at 15. At the end of 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier, better nursed than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of food and wine provided by the others. So I understand a lot of vegans love this passage. This is not saying that meat is bad. It's actually meat will be in heaven. There's fine age meat and wine in heaven, according to the prophets. So meat is a good thing. Jesus ate meat. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't, I'm not like dogging on the vegans here. But what I'm trying to make clear is that don't use this passage as a dieting passage. Like there's a book called like the Daniel plan. Like this is the anointed way for God's people to be healthy and whole. Anyone know about that book? Your kid, parents have a Daniel plan? Yeah. Uh, no, that's not the point. That's not the point here. What you need to see is that God is supernaturally able and does it here to bless them with unusual health and vibrancy despite not having probably a full diet. Don't underestimate the power of God and say, well, if I do this or say this, God will, this will definitely be the end of me or this is definitely what's going to happen. You don't know that. If you prioritize faithfulness to God, God will take care of the results. You don't need to worry about the results. That's God's job. And what we see is they prioritize faithfulness over results over and over throughout this book, and God takes care of the results. But they're not results-oriented, because you're going to see that later in a future chapter where they say, you know what, it doesn't matter result, I'm still going to be faithful no matter what. You're going to see that throughout this, these videos too. But most of us are. Aren't we not? Most of us are results-oriented, which, which is kind of a wise way to live life, right? Unless you like, have a relationship with the living, omnipotent God. You, you think, what's the end? What's the result of this? And then depending on what the result is likely to be, then I'm going to do something or not, right? That's wise. But for the Christian, we are ultimately and regularly called to do things that make no sense. And our call is to be faithful to our king, even if we don't know the result or even the result is death or bad. And we trust him. And Daniel and his friends do this over and over again. They trust him with the results and they focus on being faithful no matter the cost. Now let's look at the final God gave. God gave knowledge. Verse 17. Would you read this with me? As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill. So God gave over, God gave favor, God gave learning and skill. Because God knows and directs the future, God's sovereignty includes his power to bless people with knowledge and skill, as well as giving them understanding of visions and dreams. Just like God blessed them with unusual health for their faithfulness, God gives them unusual wisdom for their faithfulness. And the result of this is verse 18. Check this out. I'm going to just summarize it real quick. Verse 18. At the end of the time, the king commanded them to come up, and they were better than everyone else. All the other. Think about this. These aren't just other Joe Schmoes. These are the best and brightest of all the other nations that Babylon has conquered. They're not just better than them. What does the text say? How many times better? 10 times better than these other ones. Again, don't be results oriented. They won't always work out that way. But what we see is that God is able to give supernatural wisdom and knowledge despite all the things that were stacked against them. Let me, let me make a side note. Some of you and your families idolize school, grades, and achievement the best college, the best job. 
I know what that feels like, you know, like I'm Asian, you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> super, whatever you have, I get it, right? And it's, it's a lot and it can be crushing. And so it's very easy to say, you know what? It's really important to have a good go- job, a good college to get, you know, this score on the AC- SAT or ACT or whatever you guys do here. And therefore, I don't need to go to youth group because that's important. It is important. I don't need to spend time on my Bible. I need to know that book or that other thing that you need to do for school. And what I want to propose to you is that sometimes we take good gifts, good things, like a good job and education and good grades, which are good things. You you should work hard, but we prioritize them over the primary things. And could I suggest to you that just like Daniel and his friends, if you prioritize the best things, the most important things, like actually knowing God, loving him, making disciples, serving, that God will fill in the gaps and supercharge the work that you do have, the energy and the time that you do have for your school. I'm not saying neglect your school. What I'm saying is put God first and let him empower you in all the other things when you don't have as much time for it. See, see what he does. I mean, how many of you guys have read a page in a book and then you had to read it four more times and you still didn't know what it said? You know what I'm saying? What if you just read it one time? Because God's helping you. Because the other time, because you don't have any much more time to mess around. Because you spent that time serving people and investing in others and studying your Bible and loving people who are hard to love. And so that when you do have your time for your schoolwork or you're studying for your SATs or getting ready for that college, that God just empowers you because he's the God of all knowledge and he's able to help you be 10 times more wiser and smarter than your counterparts because you're putting the first things first. Again, don't be results-oriented. You could do that and just still be dumb, right? I'm not saying that everyone, you're going to magically be smart because you, you, you put God first. What I'm saying is that we, we often say, okay, okay, the result of, uh, of spending time in God's word and serving in church and all that kind of stuff is that I don't have time, and if I don't have time, I can't get a good job. If I can't get a good job, I'm going to be a loser, and no one's going to like me, and I'm going to fail and bring shame to my family, right? right? All this results-oriented thinking. But you put God first and trust him with the results, when you see Daniel and his friends throughout this book, that even though they're subversively rejecting the ideology of Babylon, the spirit of Babylon, they're still blessing Babylon and doing good work. I remember learning this in my early 20s, and I resolved that I would work really hard wherever I worked at. And every single job I had, I excelled, I did it with God's strength, and out, outshined and outworked almost all of my coworkers with God's help to, to be a light for him and to be a blessing to them. And I want to challenge you. Anybody here has job, have a job? I challenge you to be the best worker they've ever had, to be a light. Don't steal. Don't take that extra bite or do that other stuff. You be excellent in all that you do and show who you're actually working for. This is what Daniel and his friends did. They did not flex where they couldn't flex, and where they could flex, they did it to the max. They would bless and work hard. This should be the case for all of you in all that you do. I want to just remind you not to underestimate the power and blessing of God over your life if you put him first. That's not the main point of this, but I want to make sure that's said. Now let's end with the this really sweet little side note in verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. 
Why is that verse important, Sam? Well, think about this. This verse zooms out of the big picture. This book records, records events spanning about 70 years. This book records about 70 years of history. Daniel is captured by the Babylonians, but by the end of the book, he's an elderly man who has seen Nebuchadnezzar pass as well as all of his successors. The Babylon Empire is eventually taken over the Medes and Persian and Cyrus the king. So what do we see here? Even though Daniel is currently a slave of Babylon, he will outlast Babylon. It's just this little side note. Even though he's a slave, he's going to outlast them because he has his priorities set. And this all leads me to this ending. This points to a greater picture that there is a kingdom that is coming that will never end. All earthly kingdoms, all presidents will fail. There's one kingdom that will never end, the kingdom of God. And this reminds us that the life of Daniel points backward as well as forward. Do you remember I said this last session that the Bible is not just what happened, but what always happens. And remember in Egypt, there was another guy who became enslaved named Joseph. And he interpreted his dreams and visions, and he was excellent in his work, and he was, he was elevated to the second place in all the kingdoms. He was persecuted, he was put in prison, he was betrayed. And what do we see that? That's all in Daniel. That superpower, Egypt, fell. Joseph outlasted them. Joseph blessed them. Joseph did not compromise with them. Daniel does the same, and all of this points to one who is coming who will do it all more, most perfectly. Daniel is an imperfect Christ. There's a greater one who is better than Daniel. Let me remind you this. Jesus left his home country to live like a slave among a hostile land and people. Like Daniel, Jesus grew up among the people faithfully learning wisdom and growing in favor with man. Like Daniel, Jesus does not give in to the pressures and temptations from the spirit of Babylon. Like Daniel, he, Jesus, experiences much persecution, is lied about, slandered, misrepresented, and counted as guilty. And though Daniel and Joseph both lived really good lives, they were still sinners. Jesus, though, was not. He was sinless, but he was treated on the cross like he was the biggest sinner who ever lived. He did this because none of his people have ever been perfectly faithful like him. And so he made a way for them to be right with God despite their imperfections and their failures. And so all of us here, every single one of you here, has denied Jesus in some way. We all have compromised with the spirit, the attitudes of Babylon in many ways, especially me. But all of us can find forgiveness through the better Daniel, the better Joseph, Jesus. And that's my prayer and hope for you this week, that you fall more in love with this Jesus, who's greater, the greatest treasure you could ever have. And when you have him, then you have no price. You won't compromise when you have him, because you have no price, because you already have the priceless treasure. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a treasure, and not just a treasure to behold, but a treasure to have, that you share yourself with us. You are kind. You are generous. And you want to reveal yourself to these students in a greater way. And I know there's so many different things that are fighting for their attention this week. There's questions, there's doubts, there's pains, there's struggles. But I pray that you would break through all those walls and reveal yourself to us, Lord. Holy Spirit, reveal God to us so that we may behold you, see and savor you, and then we will have no price. We cannot be 
bought off. We cannot compromise because we know who we have. Thank you, Lord, for this example here. Would you reveal yourself to us more and more? And if there's any way that I misrepresented you, either in content or in manner, would you correct me? And we would forget it. But everything that was true from your word, let it continue to deeply shape us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Maddie. Amen.